Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. As we continue our series, The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple, today's episode is number 5.4. Last time we ended in the book of 2 Chronicles, where the text detailed the downfall of the Israelite monarchy and the subsequent exile of the people out of the Promised Land. Now, if we take a step back, it is the downfall of the Israelite monarchy where most of the prophetic books were written. So, for example, When the kingdom was unified, you had the prophetic voices of Obadiah and Joel. While the kingdom was being split in two, you had the prophetic voice of Isaiah. And while the kingdom was divided, you had the prophetic voice of Jeremiah. So generally speaking, when we talk about the prophets in the Old Testament, most of them prophesied when the Israelite monarchy was divided and their prophetic voice essentially warned the people of impending judgment to come. Now the prophets are very important and next month we will have episodes exclusively on the major and minor prophets. So, King Solomon dies in 931 BC, and after Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel is split in two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom is exiled in the year 722 BC, and the southern kingdom of Judah is exiled in 586 BC. Israel is exiled by the Assyrians, and Judah is exiled by the Babylonians. So, what happens in between these two dates when the northern kingdom is exiled and the southern kingdom still exists? Well, what essentially happens is that the kingdom of Judah is exposed to Assyrian rule as essentially now there's no buffer between them and the north. Once the kingdom of Israel is exiled, the Assyrians literally border the kingdom of Judah to the north. And what now happens is that the people look at the world around them and see that they are literally being boxed in by foreign empires. So as a result, instead of the people relying on God, they look towards natural kings, natural resources, and natural alliances to ensure their security. Now here's a trivia question. Who was the most faithful king in the history of the Israelite monarchy? Most people would be inclined to say David, but the question was not who was the most famous king in the history of the Israelite monarchy. The question was, who was the most faithful king? And the answer to that question was King Josiah. He came to rule in 637 BC, and he was the king who brought in the greatest era of revival in the history of the kingdom of Israel. And this is what 2 Kings 2325 says about him. Before him, Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. There is no sin recorded of King Josiah in the Bible, and the Old Testament essentially depicts him as someone who faithfully walked in the instruction of the Lord all his life. 
Now, what Josiah did as a king, what he was most famous for, was that he ushered in revival. The chief element of Josiah's reform was a reformation of worship that was mediated by a return to the word of God. And essentially, when Josiah, in a position of leadership, returned to the word, he led the people of Israel to return to the word in turn. And as a result, there was an earnest and sincere turning away from idolatry and back to God. In fact, what Kings and Chronicles records is that Josiah not only returned to the word, but he also took it upon himself to destroy false altars and all those sacred places of worship that were devoted to foreign deities. Down the line after King Josiah, the last king of Judah, who was a vassal king, was King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah was the last king to sit on the throne of Judah before the people of Judah were exiled by the Babylonians. And then in the year 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar seizes Jerusalem and destroys the city. What then happens is that Jews were exiled into Babylon, and the Babylonians who originally conquered and exiled the people, they are subsequently conquered by the Persians. Then in 536 BC, 50,000 Jews are allowed to return to Israel, are allowed to return to Jerusalem, and rebuild the nation based upon the decree of the Persian king Cyrus. So after the exile, it's crucial to understand that there is no biblical record of what happened to the northern tribe. So all of those in the kingdom of Israel that were exiled in 722 BC, there is no biblical account of what happened to those tribes. So whenever you hear the term the lost tribes of Israel, that is what that term refers to. Those tribes in the northern kingdom of which there is no biblical account. After the exile of Judah, the people are exiled into Babylon. The books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are called the post-captivity or the post-exile books because the people, once again, they are exiled from Judah. We then don't have a history of what happens to the people until after the exile when they return from Babylon in those three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And those are the three books we'll focus on now. So the first book we'll talk about today is Ezra. And the big idea of the book of Ezra is the word of the Lord. There are 10 direct references to the word of the Lord in the book of Ezra. In Ezra, the word of the Lord is central in every aspect of the lives of the people. It's involved in their religious life, their social life, their business life, and their political life. Now, the setting of Ezra is historical in that Cyrus, the king of Persia, allows Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And when Cyrus's decree goes out, approximately 50,000 Jews depart from Persian exile and return back home to Jerusalem. In the first six chapters of Ezra, around 50,000 captives return and are led by Zerubbabel. And then in the final three chapters of Ezra, 2,000 people return under the leadership of Ezra. Now, who was Ezra? 
Ezra was a priest, but for obvious reasons not being in Jerusalem, he was unable to serve or unable to function as a priest while in exile. This is why in Ezra's book there's such an earnest desire to return to the word of the Lord. Because those Jews, when they were in exile, they may not have had a city, they may not have had walls, they may not have had a temple, but what they did have is the word that they could return to and remember and rehearse who they were, who God was, and what God had done for them in the history of the drama of redemption. Now, when I say that the backdrop of Ezra was King Cyrus issuing a decree, King Cyrus did not wake up one day and have a good idea. King Cyrus was not being gracious based upon his own mental construct. What Ezra chapter 1 tells us is that the Spirit of the Lord compelled, the Spirit of the Lord moved King Cyrus in order to enact the decree that allowed the Jews to return home. So the first four verses of Ezra tell the people who was really delivering the Jews, and that is God himself. And God used Cyrus as a natural means to enact his decree. This is what Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 says. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, as I mentioned, Ezra was a priest, and because he couldn't serve in his priestly office in exile, what he did was immerse himself in the word of God. And what Ezra 7, 6 tells us is that Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given him. Ezra, therefore, played a foundational role in the order of the scribes. So in the New Testament, when we hear about the scribes and the Pharisees, this is where that group had its roots. Now, you have to understand the mindset, because in the New Testament, when we read about the scribes and Pharisees, we think about people who were exclusivists, who were elitists, and who were very judgmental. But the order of the scribes in itself had a noble intent. You basically had a people who were a covenantal people of God, who were exiled because of disobedience, and then found themselves in the midst of a foreign empire. The only thing they could do is return to God. So when they returned physically back home, they sought to separate themselves from the foreign 
nations around them and be as righteous and as obedient to the word as possible. So while the order of the scribes may have had some genuine noble intent to separate themselves from those around them, what ended up later on in the New Testament is a radically exclusive cult that became so legalistic they basically began separating themselves from their own people. As it says in Ezra 6.21, the sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel they ate the Passover. So again, the big idea of the book of Ezra is the word of the Lord, and Ezra in many ways can be viewed as a revivalist, and he was a member of a group who when they returned back home to Jerusalem, they had a sincere intent to preserve the law by having a stricter view of uncleanliness, not only from the uncleanliness of the pagan nations around them, but from that which they believe had affected the greater portion of the people of Israel. So, when the people returned from exile after so many years, Ezra realized that the people may have now left Babylon, but the Babylon did not leave the people. This is why there was such a sincere return to the word, so the people did not forget whom exactly they served. And approximately 15 years after Ezra returned, then Nehemiah returned, which brings us to our next book, Nehemiah. And the big idea of this book is the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. In Ezra, we have the religious aspect of the return in the rebuilding of the temple. In Nehemiah, we have the political aspect of the return in the rebuilding of the city's walls. Seen in this way, Ezra is analogous to Chronicles in that Chronicles gave us a viewpoint of the Israelite monarchy from the standpoint of the altar, and Nehemiah is like Kings that gave us a viewpoint of the Israelite monarchy from the posture of the throne. Now, who was Nehemiah? Nehemiah essentially was a cupbearer. He was a butler in the court of King Artaxerxes. Now, chronologically, Nehemiah is the last of the historical books in the Old Testament. So when we talk about the history of the Jews in the Old Testament, it goes no further than the book of Nehemiah. Now, what happens in Nehemiah chapter 1 is that Nehemiah prays to God. He hears that Jerusalem has been sieged and the city has been destroyed. Nehemiah is therefore obviously distraught, and then he cries out to God. So in Nehemiah, Nehemiah says, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen 
chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. The this man that Nehemiah refers to is the Persian king, and in the very next chapter, chapter 2, God answers Nehemiah's prayers. Essentially, Nehemiah looks distraught. The Persian king asks him, why are you so sad? And Nehemiah explains why he is in a state of anguish. He then requests the Persian king send him back to Jerusalem so he may rebuild the city's walls, and the Persian king grants the request. Now, Nehemiah's task was not easy because throughout the book of Nehemiah, Historically speaking, we know that there were many factions and wars going around in and around Jerusalem. So there were not only threats from the outside, but there were also threats from the inside as well, where there were many setbacks, complications, and internal strifes that tried to delay the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem. So in Nehemiah, we not only see a man in charge of rebuilding a physical wall, he also, in a sense, how to rebuild the people of Jerusalem as well. Now, when the wall is completed to continue on the themes that were planted in the book of Ezra, reformation and revival of the people continued because in Nehemiah, we have a documentation of a cleansing and purification of the people that reflects and echoes what happened when the people left Egypt. So in Nehemiah 3.8, it says, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And then in Nehemiah 13.30, it says, I purified them from everything foreign. So what happens now in Nehemiah chapters 8 to 10 is that Ezra reads the law, the people worship together publicly, they confess their sins, and their religious leaders actually put their pen to paper and actually sign an oath. They sign a contract to God and they faithfully promise to walk in God's instruction. And historically speaking, Nehemiah, again, is the last chronological book of the Old Testament. Now, the final book we'll talk about today is the book of Esther. And the big idea of the book of Esther is providence. Now, what is providence? Providence is a derivation of the word provide. So providence simply means that God provides today and uses that provision in order to steer us, in order to guide us toward tomorrow. This is how in God's providence, he steers and directs everything in the universe. And as J. Vernon McGee very cleverly writes, quote, providence means the hand of God is in the glove of human events, end quote. So the big idea of the book of Esther is providence. And the book of Esther is important for two main reasons. The first is that it is only one of two books that's named after a woman, Ruth. And the other important thing about the book of Esther is that the name of God is never mentioned in the book at all. There is not a divine title. There's not a divine pronoun that ever refers to God. The heathen king is mentioned almost 200 times, but God's name is not mentioned. Neither is prayer. 
Now, many people will use this omission as fuel to say that Esther does not belong in the Bible, but I think the omission of God's name in Esther is exactly the point. Because in spite of the fact that God's name isn't mentioned, what we still see is God's hand moving in and through the events of the book of Esther and steering and directing history and steering and directing reality to fulfill and to execute his divine will. So let's take a step back. The reason why the book of Esther exists is that, yes, the Jews were exiled from Judah and they found themselves in exile. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell us about those Jews who did return, those Jews who took the opportunity to leave a foreign empire and return home to Jerusalem. The book of Esther tells us about those Jews who didn't. So the book of Esther tells us about events that happens after Cyrus's decree is made, but for whatever reason, these Jews chose not to go back home and chose to remain in the midst of a foreign empire. But what Esther reveals to us is that although these people may have turned away from God, and although it may seem as if God may have hidden his face from his people because there is no mention of his divine name. The book of Esther tells us that God's silence does not equal his absence. And when you read verses like Esther chapter 4 verses 12 to 16, what becomes clear is that God's sovereignty is assumed throughout the narrative of the entire book. So what the book of Esther shows is that you have people in exile because of sin. You have people in exile because of idolatry, who in spite of the fact they were given an opportunity to physically return home, they chose not to. The book of Esther tells us that God had every reason to forget about his people and to turn his back on them, but he did not. Because by God's providence, even though he may be silent, he is not absent, and his fingers are still moving in and through reality for his elect. So historically speaking, the events in Esther approximately happen after the decree that allowed the Jews to return home was sent forth. The events happen after that decree, but they also transpire before Ezra and Nehemiah return. So what basically happens in the book of Esther? You have a Jewish girl by the name of Esther who begins in the book just being a layperson. And then because of a turn of events, Esther then becomes queen, the king being the Persian ruler Xerxes. There's a gentleman by the name of Haman who subsequently develops a plot and wants to eradicate all Jews. Mordecai, seeing that his relative Esther is the queen and therefore has access to the king, basically implores Esther to act on behalf of the Jewish people in order to save them. Esther is initially very, very hesitant, and then Mordecai says famously in Esther chapter 4 verse 14, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. 
What then happens in chapter 7 is that Esther makes a plea for the Jews, and they are saved, and the original instigator who wanted to kill the Jews, Haman, he is subsequently executed. And what we see in the book of Esther is that we not only see the providential hand of God, but we also realize that the Jews in exile needed a mediator to act on their behalf. They needed someone who stood next to the king, who had an audience with the king to intercede for them, and as a result of Esther's intercession, the king turned away his judgment and the people were resultantly saved. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.